This week's episode is all about E.L. Koningsberg's 1967 novel from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, and I can't think of a better way to kick it off than by reading you the book's first paragraph to really set the scene. Claudia knew that she could never pull off the old-fashioned kind of running away. That is, running away in the heat of anger with a knapsack on her back. She didn't like discomfort. Even picnics were untidy and inconvenient, all of those insects and the sun melting the icing on the cupcakes. Therefore, she decided that her leaving home would not be just running away from somewhere, but would be running to somewhere. To a large place, a comfortable place, an indoor place, and preferably a beautiful place. And that's why she decided upon the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. At the risk of sounding cliche, let me just say it. And so the adventure begins. We, as the readers, are swept into the runaway plan with Claudia and her younger brother, Jamie. We quickly find ourselves lost in a pre-9-11 world in which two small children can pack their belongings in musical instrument cases and successfully camp out in a major New York City landmark unnoticed for days on end. We cheer them on as they learn to take care of themselves, laugh at their sibling banter, and wonder right along with them if the museum's new statue, fondly known as simply Angel, is actually the work of Michelangelo. Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler herself is our narrator, but it's not entirely clear why she's involved in the mystery at all until the very end of the book. But don't worry, I'll spoil that one for you later in the episode. This week, I'm joined by Hannah Howard, who I met at a freelance boot camp days after I left my job in book publishing to pursue writing full-time back in 2016. Hannah's first book, a memoir called Feast, True Love, In and Out of the Kitchen, released in April 2018, and it's her story of working her way through restaurants, falling in love with food, and recovering from an eating disorder. I'm a huge fan of Feast and would encourage you to pick it up. You can find an easy link to buy the book in the show notes for this week at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 04. Hannah is also a freelance food writer and a lover of stinky cheese. Follow her on Instagram at Hannah M. Howard and on Twitter at Hannah Howard. I'm so excited to jump into this week's episode with you. If you're loving the SSR podcast so far, please don't forget to subscribe, submit a review on iTunes, and tell all of your friends about it. In the meantime, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR today. Thank you for having me, Allie. I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited about the book that you picked, although it has like the most complicated title to say of any of the books that (laughs) I've done so far. So I'm going to try really hard not to get tripped up as a recording. But today we're covering from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about why you picked it. Like I said, I'm not complaining, but if you could talk a little bit about if this book had a special place in your heart before or if if it was new to you, um, just kind of fill me in on your background with this novel. I definitely read this book as a kid, and I don't remember the exact age when I read it, but I do remember it made a really big impression on me. And one of the big impressions it made on me 
was that I was just a kid who was obsessed with New York. And this book made me even more obsessed with New York. It's such a celebration of the city. And I loved that about it. Right now, my memory of it was pretty vague until I reread it a few days ago. But just the name of it sparked that like magical feeling. And I remember that it really made a big impression on me. And I wanted to like check that out again and see if it held up and withstood the test of time. I have a similar um, sort of nostalgia associated with this book. This is one of the few books that I actually can like remember when I was reading it. I think I read it over a summer vacation. I was at my grandmother's house. This was one of my mom's favorite books as a kid. So she had told me that I should read it. And I remember sitting by my grandmother's pool. And I mean, I think you're a book lover like me. So you understand this. Like I remember the smell of the pages of this particular book for some reason. And I was also really into New York. So I understand that association completely. Did you like it when you were a kid? Did it, um, cause sometimes if yeah. my mom says I was going to love it, I went into it wanting to prove her wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think I went into it wanting to prove my mom wrong. And I know that I loved it. I think I devoured it in two days on summer vacation. It was one of those for me. For those listening who haven't read it, it's about two siblings who run away from home and, and we'll get into all of this as we talk more, but they run away from home. They run away to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City where they hide out for a week, which in itself is like the most magical premise ever. Um, And they kind of get involved in this art history mystery that brings them into the world and into the orbit of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. And we learn more about her over the course of the book. Hannah, I'd love if we could talk about like your initial impressions as you jump back into this book. We meet the main character, Claudia, really early on. And I think we get a sense of her within the first few pages. So what were your vibes on Claudia initially? And was she the way you remembered her? Yeah. Well, from the opening first sentences, we learn that Claudia wants to run away, but she doesn't like the outside and she doesn't like when it's too hot or too messy or too buggy. And so she has to run away in a very particular way. And so I kind of, I mean, I like that she's kind of a snob and it, you know, she is, she is not going to run away without doing it in the most perfect possible way. And I think I kind of relate to that. I share that perfectionism streak. I really like her. I mean, she's no nonsense. She's really smart. She is not afraid to say that she's a really good planner and demonstrate that to us as readers. She plans this whole trip with her brother. And I love that she chooses her brother, Jamie, because he is rich, because he's he has $24, because he's cheated at cards with his best friend very deliberately and saved very carefully, and so has this fortune amassed that he's willing to donate to his sister's cause. And I, I just... I think the premise is kind of genius. I love that it's so straightforward. Like, it's not sentimental. They're not afraid about missing their family. They're just making a plan, and they're going to do it. Yeah. Well, and it jumps into the action pretty quickly, which I liked a lot. I think within 40 pages, they're in New York. There's not a lot of dead time. I mean, you're learning a lot in terms of her planning process, but it moves really quickly, which I think is is part of why it's stood the test of time with so many kids. It's not too precious. Like, they're just kind of going for it. 
I love Claudia too. And what you said about her sort of like very particular way of wanting to run away is interesting because I was doing some research today about the author who Hannah and I both agreed that her name is really hard to say, but we're going to try. The author is E.L. Konigsberg, and the author had three primary inspirations in writing this book, one of which was that her children spent like a whole day at a picnic in Yellowstone National Park complaining about how hot it was and how dirty it was, and she was joking with them that, oh, if you kids were ever going to run away from home, it would have to be the most elegant way to run away. That was kind of one of the nuggets of inspiration that led to this plot. I love that. I didn't read that. I was poking around a little bit and I read about her being moved by seeing this piece of popcorn on a chair in the Met and that one piece of stray popcorn, I guess, made quite a lasting impression on her. And she kind of wove some of the, some of the story from where did that popcorn come from? Yeah. Where are the popcorn offenders? Yeah. Which, which is such a great question to answer. Yeah. And I'm sure you as a writer, things like that are just really interesting in terms of how, how stories are inspired. I love Claudia. I love Jamie. I think my favorite thing about Jamie, and maybe this was just the way that I read it, was early on when Claudia was describing it, I kind of imagined him as this like super straight-laced, kind of serious little brother because he had all of this money. And then we find out that he's just a cheater at cards and he cheats his friends <laughs> and he's really, you know, has all this attitude and is really funny. So I liked, I thought he was such a surprise. Yes. And I like that both of those things were too true. Like these characters are pretty complex because on the one hand, he is like really serious about his cheating. On the other hand, he's like a silly little kid. And I also love the thread of Claudia always correcting his grammar. In the end, that back and forth ends up being really key because they are always using the word baloney. I don't know if you remember that, but I was picking up on that especially when I went back through it and was highlighting and making notes before we recorded, they're always, you know, yelling at each other, oh, baloney, baloney. And in the end, they use the word baloney as a clue to solve the mystery of this statue that they find at the Met, which I think is like such a clever, also kid-friendly device on the part of the author. They're not having to reach too far, but they are having to do a little bit of thinking to figure that out. Yes, I love, yeah, and the clue is is Bologna, the city. For a minute, I was like reading it, rereading it, thinking, is that pronounced baloney? <laughs> but I just, I like that connection. I think it is really cute and clever. Yeah, it was like enough of a challenge for them, but not too much. Yes. I think that another reason that this book has held up for so long is that despite the fact that there have been changes within this museum itself, and I mean, the world obviously has changed a lot since this book was written. And I, I would like to talk about that more later because the kids who read this book now probably don't understand certain things about it because they've grown up in such a different world. But I think specifically with the museum, even though there's been changes, something that's so appealing to kids at any time is the fact that these two kids basically create like a whole society and whole life for themselves within the walls of this massive, elegant museum. And there's so many images that when I was reading them again, all of a sudden I remembered that those images had kind of been stuck in my head for all of these years. Like I remembered them. Yeah. And even though so much has changed, I kind of liked all the things that you know, the money, there's a lot of references to money and it's a really counting the money. It's a really important thread and the bus ride is 20 cents. And of course now it's more than 10 times that much, but it's still like, you still got the sense reading it that it's really expensive to live in New York and you have to be very careful. So that kind of held true for me. Mm-hmm. And like the big, amazing, impressive, inspiring New York landmarks, the majesty of the Met, 
the New York Public Library, going to the UN, watching the ice skaters at Rockefeller Plaza. Like those things are still really central to the New York experience and imagination. So I kind of like that, although a lot has changed, a lot remains the same. I agree. And something that Claudia had figured out at the beginning, and and she mentioned this a few times, is that New York is a great place to get lost. Yeah. Now that you are a New Yorker and are no longer the little girl that was just sort of fascinated with New York, would you agree? Yeah. Do you would you say now that you're here full time, do you think New York's a great place to get lost? Absolutely. I mean, I've been in New York more than 10 years and I still like walk around sometimes, especially if I'm having a grumpy day and then I look around and I look at the city around me and think wow, I live here. I'm so lucky. Like, I love this place. It still has that power to cheer me up and delight me. And I do still sometimes feel like a little kid and wonder like, oh, this is really my life. I really get to live here. And I don't think it's worn off at all. And I think that part of the cool thing about New York too, is that because it's so massive and there's so many nooks and crannies and things to explore, there's always something to discover and you can always get lost and find something new, or at least I can. I also have a bad sense of direction, so it's easy for me to get lost. (laughs) I do too. I rely heavily on my Google Maps app, even in my own neighborhood. So, um, Me too, even though it's a grid. I can't imagine living in like Paris or London with the squiggly roads that don't have any order to them. So confusing. So yeah, I'm imagining these two kids finding their way somehow through public transportation and they're pretty savvy. I have to hand it to them. They're so good at that. I noticed that they didn't, right. They didn't have Google maps then. They didn't seem to have any problem. They, They were very impressive at their directional abilities. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely things that the author didn't express, you know, didn't sort of explore in terms of like figuring out their way around and, um, the logistics, but that's not so fun. No kid wants to read about that. That's true. That's true. And I was also willing to buy it because they're smart kids. It is a grid. You know, they could do it. <laughs> I yeah. believe that. Yeah. I agree. I think Jamie had proven himself in enough ways that I bought the fact that he could figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite things <laughs> about Jamie, there's a lot that I loved about Jamie. I have a lot yeah. I have a lot of notes about him, but Claudia calls him the tightwad of the year. Which just made me laugh out loud. I mean, that's not really language that people use in 2018, but I love this, like, young girl is referring to her brother that way. He's so tight with his money. He really keeps her on track with their $24. There's a scene where they take baths in the fountain at the Met, and he starts sort of rejoicing because they've discovered income in the form of coins on the floor of the fountain. I loved that scene, yes. I felt their excitement, like, oh, yeah, (laughs) you you made however many since they made that like two dollars and something cents you guys go yeah it made me remember being a kid and like going to the mall and sitting at the fountain at the mall and looking at all the change and thinking like wow that's so much money in there Mm -hmm. so I think she captures like a lot of those moments even if you as a kid haven't experienced being a hideaway in a museum she really taps into a lot of those moments of excitement a lot of those feelings yeah and back to like loving Jamie and I think I'm so impressed that she did this with the characters too, because Claudia is so practical in so many ways. And she's the one who's meticulously planning their every move. And yet she had with her, her sense of money is kind of 
off and, you know, she wants to take a taxi. She wants to eat at the fancy restaurants, and her brother has to rein her in. And I think that kind of makes her so interesting. Like she's not all serious all the time. There's this kind of whimsical streak that just wants like luxury and to, to bask in the fabulousness. Yeah, she's really my kind of girl in a lot of ways. Um, She definitely has a lot of plans, but she doesn't want to be uncomfortable. At the end of the book, Mrs. Frank Weiler has a quote that I think really describes Claudia really well, and it doesn't apply too closely to the ending itself, so I think this is a good time to share it. Mrs. Frank Weiler says, Claudia doesn't want adventure. She likes baths and feeling comfortable too much for that kind of thing. Secrets are the kind of adventure she needs. Secrets are safe, and they do much to make you different on the inside where it counts. And I think for Claudia, like she just wants to feel adventure on the inside. She just she doesn't necessarily want to be uncomfortable or put herself out there too much, but she likes the sort of mental emotional adventure that she initiated in this book. Absolutely. Yeah, she's pretty badass. Yeah, I love her. The other thing I really liked about this book while we're talking about sort of unique takes on adventure that are different than what we read in a lot of other stories growing up, that there's such an emphasis in this book on like the importance of learning and learning being Mm -hmm. cool. Right. They're like such nerdy children. Like they really just want to go to the museum and crash the other classes tours so they can learn as much as possible and then like go to the library and learn about the statue. (laughs) I love that. I mean, that's like their big goal, but they make it really like as a reader, it's so interesting and exciting and juicy, even though all these pursuits are very like academic. And I do, I think as kind of a nerdy kid, I loved that so much. Yeah. Like she doesn't even take a day off. The first day that they get there, she hatches this plan where every day they're going to go to a new wing of the museum and they're going to learn everything there is to learn about that wing. Yes. I thought it was You got to so, maximize the time yeah. at the museum. Yes. Exactly. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I thought it was cool. Like she wanted to run away, but at no point she was like, oh, I don't want to go to school anymore. Again, as sort of a nerdy kid myself, too, I was like, I probably would have done the same thing if I'm being honest. Yeah. And I think like the museum is kind of a microcosm of New York where there's like so many, so much history, so many different cultures, so many rich experiences. And she wants to soak it all up. She's there. You know, I like, she contrasts it with her like boring Greenwich home. And so this is really an opportunity for her to like get out get more secrets and get more life experience. Yeah. I mean, even the sort of like climax of the book, it's, I mean, it's an art history mystery. And I, I think at that point had never read a book where the prize was to be smart and to figure out the origins of a statue. To me, that, yeah. that was so cool. Just such a different mm-hmm. take on adventure for me at that time. Definitely. It was new to me too. And just the sincerity and the genuineness is really lovely. Yeah. It's a very earnest book, I think, Mm -hmm. um, but not in an annoying way. It doesn't feel overly earnest. You sense their excitement about things. You sense their curiosity about the world. They're so resourceful and it's exciting to like be part of the journey with them. Yes. I'm also always impressed just how responsible they are. Like they're doing their laundry. Mm -hmm. They have, they can't have like clothes two days in a row. That would be unacceptable. They have to have clean underwear every day, which is good. But it's just like, what kind of kid is so concerned about doing the laundry? Certainly I was not. Yeah. I mean, they definitely, (laughs) they definitely came from a pretty strict household. One of Jamie's first things I, I remember was he was like, Claudia, like I didn't brush my teeth. And that was kind of his big secret, which yes. I think gives you a pretty good sense as a reader of the kind of household that they're coming from. 
Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, they were super responsible and even sort of buffering their hiding spots, you know, 10 minutes on each end of the time that they knew that they needed to hide out. They added that extra time to make sure they wouldn't get caught, although they had some run-ins. They would stand on those toilet bowls and and hide in the stalls. And they were just so thoughtful. They cracked the doors in the stalls so it wouldn't be suspicious. They really, like, had it dialed in. Yeah, and I got that sense about Claudia especially that she wasn't going to do anything half-assed. So, like, this was really buttoned up and really an impressive operation for sure. Yeah, I kind of wish she'd had some more close calls like Jamie has a close call one he, when he's supposed to be hiding from security in the bathroom and he handles it sort of mischievously um, and makes a joke mm-hmm. about like oh my mother always says I came from heaven when they ask where he came from yeah and I would have loved to see how Claudia would handle something like that me too yeah I would like to see a little crack in her perfection facade yeah something to go a little wrong but um she handled everything very well right she is almost untouchable like she somehow knew not to come out of the bathroom she's so perfect but I think as a kid to be honest like I was the kid who wanted to be perfect at everything so that made sense to me she I got her as a Mm -hmm. character yeah me too for sure I want to talk a little bit about running away as a general theme because that is definitely a popular premise in a lot of children's pop culture. And while we get a sort of a brief sense of why Claudia wants to run away and the kind of place she wants to run away to, we don't learn a lot of specifics about their family. Do you think, and this is just sort of, you know, we don't have a lot of evidence for this either way, but is your impression based on these kids, like, do you think it was really as bad or as restrictive as Claudia thinks it was? Or was it really all about the adventure for her? It's interesting because we we, we hear there this is an injustice, but mm-hmm. we don't know too much about what the injustice is. And nowhere does it nowhere do we get the idea that it's terrible. But they're also not homesick at all, which is kind of funny mm-hmm. and mysterious. And for me as a kid, I had this grand idea that I was super independent and wanted to live amazing life on my own. But I would be homesick at summer camp for sure. Super homesick. So that was always interesting to me. I don't know. I wonder if it's just their personalities. They also have each other. So they have a little piece of home. We don't know. Home, right? home is kind of mysterious. She says that like it's not about where she's running from. It's where she's running to. So I don't know. Yeah. But I just, definitely wonder, wonder about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I think now being in New York and having a sense of the New York City geography um, and knowing people who are from Greenwich, I can kind of imagine the culture of her hometown and maybe that feeling like it was pretty limiting and like she had to fit into a certain box. But it sounds like she they have a nice family. They have a lot of siblings. I really related to her role as the oldest because I'm the oldest in a big family. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a line where she talks about um, she was the only child and the only girl and was subject to a lot of injustice. Yes. And at that age, I remember having moments of feeling that way of being like, everything is so unjust because everyone is younger than me. Mm, yeah. So they get babied or they, yeah. 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 So I'm an only child. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I would go back and forth. I had these two cousins who were two sisters who were pretty close to me in age. And they would just fight bitterly all the time. 
And whenever I would hang out with them and then I would go home, I would be so relieved to be on my own and like in the quiet and like, okay, I don't have anyone to scream at me. This is good. Um, but then I had some other friends who had like great relationships with their siblings and we'd go to their house and it was so fun and there were games and laughter and I would be full of jealousy that I didn't have that. So I was either lusting after the idea of having a brother or sister or relieved to not have one. Um, but this book definitely would fall into the first category. I think it was one of those stories that really celebrates the brother sister relationship. And these guys are like, they're great together. They're a great pair. And I think a part of me was sad that I didn't get to experience something like that. Yeah, and it was neat because they weren't necessarily super close at the beginning. You know, she really taps him on the shoulder because he has all this money saved. And yeah. she seems to think that practically speaking, he would be the best choice. But she doesn't yeah. have a lot of, like, emotional ties to him. Mm-hmm. And they really bond pretty quickly. Like, they figured out they could become a team. There's a moment when she really feels like they've clicked into this love mode. And I only have sisters, so I remember thinking, oh, like, brothers are so fun and so cool. Little yeah. brothers are funny. <laughs> as an adult, I found their back and forth so hilarious. I think as a kid, sometimes when you're reading books like this and and you are reading <laughs> books about kids that think that their jokes and their insults are so serious, as a kid, you agree. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, this is all very serious. But Uh as an adult, I was like, what you guys are saying is ridiculous and just silly and making me laugh. The tightwad comment cracked me up. There are just a lot of moments where where I was just, I couldn't stop laughing because they were taking themselves so seriously in their conversations with each other. But it was just really funny from an adult perspective. Yes. They always start out bickering, but they always end up agreeing. And, you know, ultimately they're like, great teammates split up those responsibilities at the beginning that Jamie is going to be in charge of the money and Claudia is going to be in charge of everything else. And they're both like happy with that because that's what they're good at. Rarely in my observation has it been so easy to be like, this is my forte. This is your forte. And that's that. Yeah. I almost feel sort of badly for their siblings after these two come home, because I have a feeling that it's going to be like Jamie and Claudia against the world moving forward. Oh, yeah. And their siblings are never going to stop hearing the end of this story. Oh, <laughs> never. All the adventures that they had, the way that they survived on their own, they went to the automat. I loved the automat scenes, by the way. Anytime they talked about what they were going to eat, and again, I don't know if I was, as a kid, fascinated by the idea of having a choice about what you're going to eat. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. Yes. I, yeah, at the beginning, I love how Jamie gets a cheese sandwich for breakfast and Claudia is disapproving because it's not breakfast food. But then the next day they're hungry and they order like what mac and cheese and a whole bunch of other things. So it's just she even the experience is loosening her up a little bit. She's going to concede that. I love the food scenes too. And just thinking about what the automat would be like in New York in 19... 67. Yeah. It seems like it was a really interesting time to be in New York, but then again, when isn't it an interesting time to be in New York? Kind of of the time, I found, I mean, look, there's not a lot of criticism out there about this book. I tried to find it. I always like to kind of find the secret dark corners of any of these books because I think it's interesting to talk about. There's not a Mm -hmm. lot out there on this, which made me happy because it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's like pretty close to a damn perfect book for middle grade readers. Yeah. But just 
you know, of the time in the 60s, there was one sort of one kind of dark comment that Claudia made in the book about a chocolate bar that Jamie found on the ground. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She found this chocolate bar on the ground and Jamie wants to eat it because he's a little boy and they've been eating cheese sandwiches and like rationing their money. And um, Claudia tells him not to eat it because there might be dope in it. Yes. Um, which at the time, I imagine, you know, like in the 60s in New York, there probably was a lot of conversation about that kind of thing. And the one piece of criticism that I found while I was researching from the mix-up files for this recording is that I guess one person is on record taking issue with this mention. Okay. It came to E.L. Konigsberg in 1993, so decades later. So I do think maybe there is more of a puritanical vibe in the country. What was the issue, that the dope shouldn't have been there at all? Yeah, the issue was that the dope should not have been mentioned at all in the book, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious now, given, like, what kids are exposed to. The fact that there was, like, one sort of passing mention of dope in a chocolate Mm -hmm. bar. But I love E.L. Konigsberg because she responded to the letter by (laughs) referencing another letter that she'd gotten from a reader in which a little girl wrote the author and said, I liked when Claudia wanted to be a heroine. I thought that was only a drug, but now I know it means a girl hero. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so E.L. Konigsberg quoted that letter and responded to her critic and said, would the reviewer who in 1967 was offended by my brief reference to drugs be equally offended by a young reader who needs an explanation for heroin, but not heroin? So I love that she snapped back at her critic in that way. And as far as I can tell, it was like an open closed case. You know, there wasn't a lot of uh, uproar about the dope chocolate bar. And I'm happy for that. Well, you know, it kind of echoed as a kid in the 90s, all those like scare tactic, anti-drug, anti-tobacco messages that we got in school and everywhere Claudia had got that fear from somewhere like you you know you eat a dope chocolate bar and you're hooked for life and all downhill from there and I feel like that was kind of the drug education that I was fed yeah did your parents check your Halloween candy because my dad definitely did um they probably did I'm not <laughs> I really sure <laughs> I don't really know what that entails because Maybe it was just his excuse to like steal some of my have, have the best ones peanut yeah. butter cups exactly. Yeah. Those but, are the best ones. Yeah, there was always this process where he'd be like, "You can't have any. I have to check it." Maybe he just wanted to make sure it was all still in packaging. But that was definitely a thing um, when we were growing up. So an interesting callback to the dope chocolate bar of from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank Weiler. Yes, oh, I love Yale Konigsberg so much. Um, it is worth mentioning that this was her first book. She was a stay at home mom. She had three kids. And she went on to write 21 novels after this book. She won two Newbery medals. Like, she was a big deal. And this was what yeah. kicked off her career. Yes. And, um, yeah, rightfully so. It's so good. I was reading her, I guess, her note 35 years later at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And then I saw she died a few years after that. And I felt very sad, you know, just because she's so amazing and she didn't get to see the 50th anniversary of this book. Yeah. She and her legacy in this book have become so tied to the Met and I think New York in general. I read something somewhere and I think it was actually part of the book where people who work at the Met get so many questions to this day about about the book and kid visitors in particular all want to know where Angel is. 
which is the name of the statue. There was never any such statue. There's never a Michelangelo statue at the Met. Um, but it is pretty cool that this book has like taken hold in so many children's lives. That being said, I do think we should talk a little bit more about the statue. Okay. The statue ends up being such a focus of the book because it really like accelerates, I think, Claudia and Jamie's personal growth. It's not it's not really about the statue. Um, it's about what the statue represents. And I have to admit that at the beginning, I had trouble understanding why the statue meant so much to Claudia. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that it was so clear right away. Did you understand right from the start, like why Claudia was so obsessed with the statue and figuring out if it was really a Michelangelo? No, I mean, my take, I had the same question as I was reading, but as I read more, I think my take was that, you know, it wasn't necessarily the statue itself, but this idea of the mystery behind it and that the statue had been in the book sold at auction for $225 to the Met. And the question is, is it a Michelangelo or is it a counterfeit Michelangelo or is it just something else entirely? And I think just that idea of the mystery and the secret is what captures Claudia's imagination. And I I could identify with that. And also, you know, um, there's lines of people and this is a huge attraction. It's in the New York Times. And so just the general excitement from the public around it is really mysterious and cool. Yeah. And I think you're right. It becomes clearer over the course of the book. There are some beautifully written passages about Claudia reflecting on what it really means to her to be changed by the mystery of of Angel and more importantly by the satisfaction of solving the mystery of Angel. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so important to her to go home different than she was when she left. And yes. for whatever reason, Angel became like a central part of that. Yeah. I also love the idea that since they were living at the Met, so they were living with Angel, Mm -hmm. they had this different relationship than anyone else had with Angel, and that that allowed them insights into Angel's true being. And I I love that. Like, they talked about, I guess she had heard that line, you know, the way to know someone is to live with them, and they were uh, roommates, you know. And I, I liked that she felt like she had that unique insight into the true angel. That was cool. Yeah. And Jamie had a funny line, too, where he was like, yeah, the only way to get to know somebody is to live with them or to play cards with them. And he, of course, is this card shark that's been cheating right. his friends for years. So right. always coming in with the comic relief. Thankfully, we have yeah. Jamie. That also brings them the connection with Mrs. Basil Frankweiler herself, who, though in the title of the book and kind of periodically popping in with her personal observations isn't physically part of the book's action until near the end. Right. Which I liked. It builds some sense of mystery over the course of the book, especially because she is the narrator, but mm-hmm. largely a passive narrator. Right. So you're w- wait, kind of waiting for her to make her entrance. Yeah, I think that's like a really cool tool. I was like noticing that as a writer who's always reading things like, how do I do that? Um, so right. So she's narrating this in the first person with these occasional references to, I guess, as an address to her lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. But then most of it is from the close point of view of Claudia and then once in a while it switches to Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler and then once in a while we get into go into Jamie's head too so I kind of feel like she did that really adeptly really beautifully yeah it was really smooth I kept finding myself forgetting that Claudia wasn't the narrator right because um, we know her so well we know her and we're so, so well. in her head yeah you don't really even know until the end why Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler understands what was going on in Claudia's head so much but it turns right. out that 
Claudia and Jamie end up giving her this full account of their adventure in order to settle the matter of who's going to get the sketch that Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, it's so hard to say, in order to settle the matter of like who's going to get the sketch that she has of Angel, um, yeah. she kind of forces them to divulge all the secrets of what they've been up to since they've run away. What did you think of that encounter? The Really the last few pages of the book are dedicated to their time with Basil E. Frankweiler, and we're finally out of the action of the Met. What did you think of that transition? Did you enjoy seeing them in a different environment? Did you kind of wish that Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler had come to the museum? How did you feel about it? I liked it. I mean, I felt like Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler's, you know, she lives in this amazing mansion. It's almost like a museum in our description. And, you know, even when she takes them around the house, she said, I haven't even been around the house for a long time. So you get this sense of its grand scale. And there's this amazing marble black bathtub that I really want to take a bath in. So I think it's another like cool, fascinating environment. And she also has that office with the endless filing cabinets. So I I kind of got the sense that the mystery was continuing, even though we were on someone else's turf. I liked it. I agree. And I thought she was such an interesting character. And one of my favorite things about her, and I think this is part of why she worked so well as a narrator throughout, is she really understood the kids, especially Claudia, like she saw them for who they really were. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, she understood everything about Claudia. She had a quote somewhere where she says, I was glad that I wasn't dealing with a stupid child. I admired her spirit, but more I wanted to help her see the value of her adventure, which I think really captures Claudia in such a beautiful way because she's smart and she is so spirited, but she doesn't necessarily understand what she's accomplished. She's mm-hmm. always looking for the next thing and trying to understand the biggest accomplishment she can have. And she needs somebody like Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler to explain to her that there's value in just the fact that she recognized that she wanted to have an adventure and just in the fact of surviving on her own in a museum for a week. Absolutely. I got the idea that Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler, I think she's 82 and that she had such a like exciting, incredible life, but maybe like Claudia not always in like a predictable, like maybe that was, didn't mean like jet setting around the world, but whatever, you know, we know she has all these files. We know she collects all this amazing art. And I think she kind of sees herself in Claudia and that spirit and that need to discover things and to echo what you said. I think she's kind of teaching Claudia that some adventures are these external ventures about places you go and things you see, but then there's all these internal adventures about things that you learn and discover and grow in a kind of quieter, but no less huge and vital way. Yeah. And Claudia definitely needs that as much as we love her and as badass as she is, she needed somebody to give her a little perspective. Um, Absolutely. And she needed somebody to explain to her that the physical adventure can end because that was something that she seemed to be having some anxiety about. Like she was really nervous to go home. She didn't want it to be over, which is a feeling that I remember very well from being a kid. And Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler reminded her like, it's not over. It's kind of continuing, but this part of it is we're going to bookend it and it's going to be done, but that doesn't make it any less important. And that was such needed perspective. I mean, we really didn't come into contact with any adults through the course of the book. And so we kind of needed that voice to come in at the end. Yes. And, and the adult is 82. So she's totally an adult, but I feel like she does have this sort of childlike appreciation for things and that ability to really relate to these kids, which I made me really admire her. Yeah. Cool lady. Yeah. And I do like to imagine because there was talk at the end of the book about 
there being this ongoing relationship between Claudia and Jamie and Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler because she's very much alone and is kind of hinting at the fact that maybe she wished that she'd had children. Mm-hmm. And I did close the book wondering, like, I wonder what their relationship would have played out like. Was right. she invited to family dinners? Did they Were they pen pals? Is there a way that you would choose to imagine that? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was so touching that mm-hmm. the kids say uh, she can be like our secret grandmother. Um, and they say it thinking they're speaking in confidence, but the chauffeur overhears them. And so it gets word gets back to her. Yeah, I think they'd be like really good buddies. And maybe they could have some more adventures together. I imagine them walking around the Met together or maybe somewhere new and teaching each other. Is there anything that you think may have gone over your head um, when you read this as a kid or a lesson that you didn't pick up on or some subtlety that you just missed the first time you read it because you were younger? Yeah, I think I missed, I mean, I think I got the, they go to the Met, they have this cool adventure, these kids are so cool. I I don't think any of the last part of what we talked about, about sort of like the, the meaning of these memories and the way you can feel internally changed. I don't think any of that really I could process fully. Yeah. Or I certainly didn't remember it. If I did, I would be really impressed, but I doubt it. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that was part of the lasting impression for me at all. Mm-hmm. And I and I wouldn't imagine that any kid would, would have that impression, even if they were reading it now. I do think it's interesting to think about kids in 2018 reading this book with the understanding of the world that they do have now, which is sadly a little bit less innocent. There's so much more danger in our world or different kinds of danger, and I think kids are so much more aware of it. And it makes me sad thinking that kids might read a book like this, which has this premise about two kids that are on their own for a week in New York City, making their own decisions, paying for things as they see fit, not being found by their parents for a week. And obviously an element of that is just fantasy and is part of the adventure. And I think that's great. But it does make me kind of sad thinking that kids today might read that and sort of write all of that off as so silly that they can't get into the magic of it. Right. I mean, my mom talks about my mom grew up in Queens in Sunnyside and she took the subway by herself when she was really young kid and did all these things. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, It's a it's a different world, but we would also be able to find our children with our smartphones in like a minute and. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's some, of course, like there's something good for it because you don't really want your kids to be lost in New York City for a week. That's not a real (laughs) happy story in real life. On the other hand, it is romantic and magical. Yeah. I just, I hope that kids, I feel like kids today, kids today, I sound like I'm Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler and 83 (laughs) years old, but I do think that kids are so smart in so many ways about the world now. And I, I hope that this book continues to be a classic because I do think it would be easy for children now to get 60 pages in and sort of be like, oh, their parents would have found them by now. Like, why is this still a thing? And miss some of the those good feelings that this book gave me the first time around. Um, and I hope that that's not the case because it is. I hope so too. Yeah, I mean, kids are just reading it in a much different world even than we read it in. So, Although I also hear, I mean, I, I don't have kids, so I don't really know. But um, that, you know, now that kids have their own little worlds on their phones, I've heard about some teenagers being less kind of adventurous. And I mean, when I was a teenager, I was just so eager to have my own life, my own world that had nothing to do with my parents. And I've heard some people who are parents of teenagers saying like, our teenagers 
are happy to just hang out in our world and then go hang out on their phone. So maybe there's another thing that's lost about that kind of adventurous spirit that I hope isn't completely lost. Yes, I agree. Is there anything that upon this more adult reread you found to be at all problematic in this book? I was willing to take those leaps of faith. Like, yes, probably this wasn't going to happen, but I was totally happy to go along with it. No, you know, I do kind of feel like I'm a cynical reader. I don't, I I don't read much like fantasy or anything because I'm like, so bogged down by reality. I don't know if that's the right answer as to why, but I was like pretty, pretty willing to go along with this story full steam ahead. Yeah, I agree. And I was really happy that I felt like it held up really flawlessly for me. So many of the other books that I've read for the show have proven themselves to be like wildly offensive. Oh yeah. Like which one? <laughs> uh, Nancy Drew is so so sexist um yeah i think when this airs the nancy drew episode will be releasing the following week so all of your listeners have that to look forward to Um, (laughs) i would definitely want to listen about the sexist nancy drew that's disappointing yeah i mean there's a lot of of problematic content in a lot of these books from a few decades ago these books were a product of their time and it is really cool that even at a time in the 60s when there could have been some content that in hindsight, would be upsetting. There's not much of that in this book, and I really appreciate that because it it really gives it the feeling of a classic that I certainly would want to give to my kids someday. Absolutely. Yeah, I was almost surprised how I was waiting to be disappointed, and I never was, so that was an amazing thing. I kept waiting for it and waiting yeah. for it and waiting for it, and then I was so happy when I got to the last page, and it seemed like we were out of the woods. It was like, finally a book that I'm not going to have to ruin for all of the listeners on the podcast. I think I know what your answer to this question is going to be, but I do ask it of all my guests, and I think it's a great way to sum up this conversation. Did rereading from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, again, at this point in your life, did it make you love the book even more, or did it ruin it for you? It made me love the book more, and I'm so glad for the opportunity to reread it again because what was the hint that it was a great book became totally confirmed, and my feeling that I might be a fan, now I know I'm a fan. So it was really fun to read this book again. Good. I agree with you 100%. So we've gotten to the end of our From the Mixed Up Files conversation, but to close us out, I'd love if you would maybe share a book that you're reading now or a book that you've read recently that you want to recommend to our listeners? Sure. I'm in the middle of this wonderful set. I'm looking here at the author because I'm going to put the author. It's two um, novellas and I've loved the first one. I couldn't put it down. And I'm now in the middle of the second one. It is called Asymmetry, and it's by Lisa Halliday. Okay. And the first story is about this young woman in New York who's having an affair with some sort of Pulitzer Prize-winning old famous writer who's dying. And then the second novella that I've just started is about someone detained in an airport. And it's just 
wonderfully written, super intriguing, incredible characters, and I'm very much into it. Well, I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And I also have to give a shout out while we're talking about recent reads to your book, Hannah Howard's Feast, which I'm a huge fan of. I'll also include a link to your book in the show notes. I recommend that everybody read it. It's some of the most beautiful writing, food-related or otherwise, that I've experienced in a long time. And I'm not just saying that because you're my friend. I really (laughs) loved your book, and I hope everybody who's listening picks up a copy. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.